I think a lot of our sort of civic investments and sort of our civic strategy is still in the sort of the Exxon IBM phase, um, which is about sort of engineering and hardware and sort of like yeah. not, not realizing that the new economy, in my opinion, is a combination of, I would call it crossover and content. You're listening to Michael Kaufman, who's challenging Indianapolis and other communities to think differently about terms like economic development and arts and culture. Michael is my guest on this episode of Michael Loves Indy. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. This episode features a wide-ranging conversation with my friend Michael Kaufman about economic development, arts and culture, the changing nature of our cities, and I hope you enjoy it. Michael Kaufman, if you don't know him, is one of the most interesting individuals you'll ever meet. I met him over a decade ago. Uh, he had moved to Indianapolis, and he was running a record label. He's had a long-standing association with the artist Sufjan Stevens and has led the record label Asthmatic Kitty. He's also managed a number of other artists with the national profile, most recently the artist Sun Lux, uh, the musician Rafik Batia, who's uh, part of Sun Lux, and many other musical artists. But he also consistently over the past 10 years has had leadership roles in the Indianapolis community, recently served for several years as the vice president of civic investments for Eskenazi Health System. And I would describe Michael, he's kind of a futurist, but he's also a practitioner. He's definitely someone who works to uh, catalyze really uh, concrete ideas. You know, in his time at Eskenazi Health, Michael was responsible for a lot of the creative community elements that were part of this new um, uh, huge hospital and health complex in Indianapolis, elements like the Sky Farm, um, where Eskenazi Health literally grows food in an urban farm on the roof of the hospital, um, many other, uh, you know, community gardens. There's, a, there's a, uh, a wonderful grand piano in the lobby. And so Michael, as one of the things he did for Eskenazi, made sure that uh, public art was prominently featured and sustainability and kind of brings all these different disciplines together. He's also done a lot of consulting for organizations, including the organization that I lead, the Indy Chamber, Central Indiana Community Foundation. But he is in many ways a futurist because he's always thinking ahead to the intersections of these disciplines like uh, economic development, talent diversity, sustainability, and I just get a lot through our conversations. He's always many years ahead of where I am and oftentimes the mainstream of people in our cities. So we talk about a lot of things. I uh, hope you enjoy this conversation with Michael Kaufman. Thank you for making the time, especially in a week like this. It's good to talk about the future. And yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of where to start, um, I do. I, 
I, I I'll cover, you know, your, your bio in the notes and everything like that. But if you're describing to people kind of your, your background and the, the kind of key steps that kind of got you where you are, um, how do you, how would you describe that just from scratch? Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's sort of a nice, even 10 years in the music business and 10 years in public service. Wow. And, and now I'm on the start of a new chapter and, and, you know, going back to more of the music arts and culture side of things and excited to jump back into that. Um, you know, and in that 10 years of public service, you know, five of it was really focused on the Eskenazi hospital construction project and project managing the, the sky farm and the public art program. And just being a, I think, a, an additional design leadership voice there and helping weave the narrative of what we were doing with the the campus with what the hospital historically has been about, and then also cast a vision for the future. Uh, and then the, the sort of the second five years, and it's probably not exactly five and five, but something like this, the second half of that decade, definitely focused more externally on partnerships with, you know, folks like the chamber and CICF and plan 2020. Uh, and, um, you know, my title, you know, VP of civic investment, you know, is a, um, a real honor and, and, and sort of pleasure to have that opportunity just for our corporation to see me as a value add into our civic uh, architecture and conversation. Yeah. I mean, the way, the way that I would describe you to people over the years, I don't know if this, I hope this captures it, but it's, you know, your work's manifested itself in really concrete ways. The Eskenazi hospital, you know, you mentioned the sky farm, um, where they literally grow food for the hospital and a lot of the commissioning public art, um, you know, grand piano with world-class musicians putting on public concerts in the lobby on a regular basis. And it's like, I guess what I'm trying to say is you, you operate from these um, uh, theoretical principles, but I also, but I also, everything you've done is very tangible that I know of, whether it's, physical public art, whether it's, you know, recordings and things like that. Is that, is that an accurate uh, statement? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, one of the projects I'm working on right now is the B&O trail, which would connect Hawville and downtown out to Speedway and the, you know, it, it, and so, you know, that will feel like a very tangible, you know, uh, you know, a couple miles of trail. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I've always been a real believer in, you know, ideation without implementation is just, you know, blowing smoke. And so, um, I mean, I think ideation is important if it could be offer sort of concrete paths forward to real realization. Um, and so there are some people who like, you know, are better at just ideating and, and, um, but there has to be enough in that ideation, enough entry points or enough ways to, tie it into existing momentum or leverage existing resources so it can actually be realized. Um, you know, um, Michael Bricker, uh, he used to be the executive director for PUP, uh, who actually is quarantined in Australia at the mo- moment. Not, oh, wow. Not such a bad place to be. Um, you know, he and I have, have talked about this before. Uh, we joked because for a while, early on in the days of People for Urban Progress, they had a poster or a t-shirt or something. I can't remember that said, I have an idea. And then Bricker and I joke that actually what the shirt should say is I, I have it. I had an idea and I did something about it. Yeah. 
Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I see what you said as a high compliment and, and cause sometimes I do feel like my work is perceived as somewhat obtuse. Um, and I think some of that is because also I'm often, I, I enjoy, and I don't mind being very much behind the scenes or trying to move things forward. Yeah. So a lot of people, I, before I get into, um, asking you to talk about cultural economy and this concept. So coming from, um, an artistic background, and I know that's somewhat general cause you, you know, you, you have experience in some different disciplines, but I've known a lot. I know of a lot of people who come from artistic backgrounds who once it's time to interact with, um, and I'm using air quotes, the establishment, you know, uh, the public sector, you know, philanthropic sector, they get incredibly frustrated. And I've seen you operate with a high sense of urgency, but also a real patience, you know, and an ability to, um, ability to establish common interests with, you know, could be politicians, could be, you know, lifelong civil servants. Are there, are there things that, you know, uh, working habits or things that have served you well that have made that, that, you know, like if you, if an, if an artist came to you and said, I'm, I just, I've got this thing I'm trying to get done in my community and I just keep hitting a wall, you know, are there things that have served you well to allow you to work in that arena? Yeah. I mean, some of it's just is upbringing, honestly, you know, I was a preacher's kid. And so, you know, the goal was to break as many rules as possible and not get caught. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that translated, you know, that like, and then I went to a very sort of structured, you know, uh, university. I went to Bucknell university and, you know, very traditional liberal arts school. And I was always interested in sort of, you know, trying to find workarounds within those structures that were then sort of ingested or acknowledged by those structures. Um, and so I joke that, you know, I, I've been trained as an artist, but my medium is bureaucracy. Yeah. And, and I, and so I, I, you know, I, I really do like, uh, at least I've, I have enjoyed the, you know, the last decade of working with within fairly rigid structures. Um, and, and for me, the sense of accomplishment of making a change, even if it's very small and incremental in a rigid structure is just more rewarding than, and again, this is just me personally, than, than sort of making a big change in an unstructured environment. Yeah. And so I think, you know, like I'm always of the opinion that if you can change, like it's fine to sort of be underground and grassroots, we need all that. And I fully support that. But we also, I think, need, you know, people who are able then to sort of open pathways or open doors uh, or, or, or kind of um, find sort of the loopholes or, uh, you know, the gaps in the sort of <laughs> institutional armor, so to speak. Yeah to invite these new ideas and new people into those conversations. As far as like actual sort of advice to artists or skills, you know, one thing, um, you know, I, I think, I think sometimes, yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's a tricky question. I, I guess like, I think you mentioned patience. I think patience is definitely a big thing. I think it's, I think it's really, it really all comes back to empathy though. It's like, do you, cause through empathy, I think you can begin to understand another person's thought process and logic. Yeah. And so starting off with this sort of emotional empathy that then moves into more of a analytical empathy. Yeah. Um, that is motivated by trying to, you know, reach, you know, it's not just about fulfilling your own agenda, but filling your own agenda in a way that bolsters and rewards the other person's agenda. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and that's not always 
going to be appropriate. Yeah. Um, there are times where the ad agendas need to be broken apart and broken down. I mean, this last year is a great example of that. Um, um, but yeah, I think, I think that's, those would be some. And, of yeah. And when there's, and, and when there's, um, when, and on those occasions where there's, it's, there's no common ground to be had, you know, which, and I'm still an optimist. I'm always going to uh, be right up to the 11th hour trying to look for some common interest, but yeah. And I, I think, I think I know what you mean. Um, and yeah, you know, the, the empathy that you talk about, my understanding is changing because I think a decade ago I would have thought, well, yeah, empathy is important, but I was thinking about a, a, the, like you said, the emotional kind of affective rather than a, a, if I'm following you, what follows from that, which is a disciplined practice yes. Yes. of, of putting, of, of seeing yourself in another person's circumstances. If that, yeah, if I'm just, yeah. 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 I mean, this goes back to the difference between ideation and implementation. Yeah. I think a lot of people, what a lot of people, I think uh, what they think of as empathy or when they think they're practicing empathy, they're actually practicing sympathy. Interesting. And, and I think, um, you know, I, I, I used to use this analogy that like the goal is to move from sympathy to empathy, to compassion and, and the compassion, I, I probably would not use those same words anymore, but, but the, the, my understanding is the original sort of, uh, I think it's like the Greek word for compassion. I'm probably totally butchering this, but had to do with the gut. And it was sort of, um, you know, it was an empathy so deep that it affected you at your gut, compelling you to act. Wow. Um, and so what I think about with empathy, like, you know, it's sort of empathy as ideation is uh, just not even useful, but empathy with, ide you know, with implementation, with action, with, with um, sort of addressing or, uh, trying to attempt to change the conditions by which someone is suffering or something's being prohibited or something's not, you know, uh, having its full realization that, that, that becomes, a to me, that's what true empathy is. Yeah. And, um, and the, um, true relationships built on trust. And again, I'm, I'm kind of thinking back to things that you've said before, but it's like, and, and a very important part of that being um, opening yourself up to relationships with people in very different circumstances and just allowing that to kind of yeah. take shape. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I think, I think there's a factor, there's a durational factor to trust that we forget about. Yeah. Um, I think like, we think that trust is convincing someone that we're on their side. That's not trust. I mean, that, that, um, you know, I, I think, I think it's like sort of allowing for trust has to emerge and trust um, sort of emerges at almost at its own pace. It can never emerge at your pace. Yeah. And that's a hard lesson and that's a hard practice, but I, I, I'm more and more in believing that. And I, I think, um, you know, so I think, you know, I think investing time into, just the relationship with no agenda, uh, you know, is, is sort of the first step towards building that trust. Yeah. Um, and, and a willingness, you know, honestly, a willingness to have, have whatever it is you're setting out to accomplish be redirected through that process. Yeah. Well, I, um, I appreciate, I mean, and, and I think, I think, I think we'll be talking more about this as we kind of talk about cultural economy. And so the, I, just a couple of big questions that I just wanted to ask you to share your thoughts on. Um, 
one of them is a term that I'm pretty sure I learned from you, uh, cultural economy. And in your work at Eskenazi and in your work at Central Indiana Community Foundation, one common thread that I've seen over the last several years is you've been using kind of your platform to get people to think much more broadly about arts, about um, talent retention and talent attraction, about, uh, you know, community and, and, a, and, a, and a community's ability to access, you know, art and nature and beauty. And the term that keeps coming up, it's not the only term, but is, is, is cultural economy. And so if someone were coming to you asking you what that means or asking you how they could, um, you know, how they could develop an understanding of, of this term. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what would you say? Well, the first thing I would say is don't try to define culture because that's a messy one and yep. people always get tripped up on that. And so I think I don't want people to think that I'm limiting a definition of culture by my definition of cultural economy. Cause I yes. mean something much more, um, uh, what's the word so much more um much more narrow by cultural economies yeah um, and and so you know i think about you know what i've seen you know um historically in indianapolis you know we've invested in arts and culture and we often sort of invest in it i, I think out of an attitude of of, of moral imperative, which, you know, I don't know, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with the moral imperative arts and yeah. culture. Um, but then often what we'll do is then do an economic impact study. And, you know, if you really believed in the moral imperative of arts and culture, you wouldn't have to do an economic impact study. Um, and so in some ways you sort of undercut the argument around the value of arts and cultures as moral imperative with an economic impact study. So, so, you know, I started realizing, well, look, like, you know, like in a, in a, in a capitalist system where we are competing against other cities, why wouldn't we think about why, if, if we want to elevate the value of arts and culture, we really need to think about it as an economy. Yeah. Um, it's just the way that our civic, you know, and government and even philanthropy structures have uh, kind of framed up our, you know, the thinking about how we compete and how we, how we structure and move things forward. And so, yeah. You know, and it's interesting. I mean, it, cultural economy is actually, you know, I, I, I used to think that I was pretty divergent from sort of the early strategies of cultural tourism that our city had. And I realize now that actually that was the a more, dis, more uh, defined and strategic investment in cultural economies. We just didn't call it that then. So, uh, Michael, I, and if I'm if I'm following you. So. It seems it feels it seems like there's an assumption that um, in a past era, and you can you know if however many years ago that was, there's a time when um, when arts and culture were seen as amenities and and um, and programs that were important, including from a moral imperative. And what you're suggesting is they, but but. In a in a bygone era, they were seen as separate from what drives an economy. Correct, correct. Okay. Okay. And I and I guess my point is there was a moment in time, sort of under the Cultural Development Commission, to a certain degree, where that was sort of be pre being presented that arts and culture could serve as a tool, yep, and as a value add to a larger tourism sector yep. economy strategy. 
but uh, but I don't think the arts and culture was ever seen itself as a viable sector or economy. It was more seen as a an ingredient to that other strategy. So so another so if I'm following you, then I'm, I'm so in nineteen what year nineteen whatever. It's like I'm a community leader, and it is it's a moral imperative that we have a, a great symphony, and we do because that's that's what that's what great cities do. But maybe as a community, we weren't thinking, oh, if you, if you can have these great arts institutions, then that means you're going to have um, uh, an economy where uh, musicians can thrive. And here are all the supports you need to put around a thriving music economy. So it, we, we, we create these great institutions, which have served us well, but, but it, 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 there wasn't the integration into yeah, different yeah. like tech and, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. Okay. Yeah, okay. and I think, and I think, you know, and again, I don't want to like, I don't want to uh, sort of ignore some of the people who were thinking that way. I mean, I would yeah. say Music Crossroads, for instance, really understood that there was an opportunity to leverage the sports strategy for this music strategy. Yeah, even before you know, you know, the chamber and everyone else was doing the music strategy. Absolutely. Um, you know, I don't necessarily. I I think I, you know, my strategy would have been you know slightly different in sort of set of ingredients, but I think the intention was very similar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think then we, and then as a result, what we've done is I think we, um, you know, historically we've funded again, both with public dollars and film, philanthropic dollars, sort of like sustaining arts and culture because of that moral imperative, as opposed to strategic investments that would grow industries and economies and businesses and entrepreneurship around those, around that sector. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I think that's, I think it's okay. It's it's great if people want to sort of invest in in um, you know art for art's sake, but but I think there's a missed opportunity by not going beyond that. Yeah. And 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 so you know one thing I've always said is like you know like would I rather would it be better to give a grant to a painter or would it be better to sort of figure out how to sustain and support and grow a coffee shop that hires five painters? Yeah. Um, and and that's not to say that culture should always be led by the market, but when we live in a market condition, that's, that should be a consideration. Yeah. And then I, I, I don't know when it happens and, you know, maybe through your, um, doctorate, doctoral research, um, you'd be able to find it, but I started becoming more aware in the early to mid two thousands of, um, lines getting blurred in terms of what you're talking about in terms, like, and maybe it was my age, you know, cause you and I are about, about the same age, you know, we're in our forties, but in the early to mid two thousands, starting to really appreciate, um, re- like one restaurant, an impact and, and an economic impact that one restaurant can have, you know, um, a coffee shop, um, a string of, um, a district that has arts galleries and music venues. And if I'm following what you're talking about in terms of the, the older view of supporting arts and culture um, that in Indianapolis, but also in other cities, there wasn't a uh, support structure for, you know, artisan, you know, food, the craft beer thing, you know, which, which yeah. blew up in, in, in yeah. many, many, many different cities, um, small businesses that had large cultural impacts uh, are, is that, does, does that kind of match your kind of the timeline of what you're talking about? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the whole creative class push is also interesting too, because I don't think the creative class push in the way that it has historically been understood or maybe communicated to me, that was still a perpetuation of this idea of um, it serves a different end. Like, yeah. get, you know, like make your city attractive. So other sectors and other businesses will move here. Whereas it could be like, well, make, maybe make your city attractive and then figure out how to grow those things into robust economies. Yes. Um, and also figure out how then to integrate them into, you know, into true innovation. I, I mean, I'm really inspired and really optimistic about 16 tech and yeah. I think, you know, and, you know, anytime you, you're going to do a big development project like that, and there's multiple opinions and players involved, it's going to be messy and people are have different views of it and some things are going to work and some aren't, but I do get the sense that Bob and Emily and Starla and team and Eric, like, you know, the folks that are involved in that, I think they do understand that, like, you know, innovation does come from this idea of when you bring disparate elements together into co-locate. You know, what, what happens when someone who is doing a lot of work in, um, you know, biotech, uh, when, what, what happens when biotech and fashion meet up, you know, you get wearables and like, what's the future of wearable technology that monitors health behavior and supports health behavior? You know, like, so to me, yeah. there's, to me, there's like the, all these industries, like all the innovation. I mean, you look at what the biggest corporations in the world are right now. They're all creative corporations, Apple. Disney, Marvel, you know, Netflix, like yep. Amazon, you know, Amazon started off as a bookseller. Yep. Um, so I, 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 not that I'm, I'm happy that all those giants are as big as they are. And I think there's some challenges and problems there, but regardless, my point is, is that, you know, I think we're, I think a lot of our sort of civic investments and sort of our civic strategy is still in the sort of the Exxon, uh, uh, IBM phase, um, which is about sort of, engineering and hardware and sort of like yeah. not not realizing that the new economy in my opinion is a combination of uh i would call it crossover and content yeah um so yeah and and you know it's like um 20 years ago well 10 years ago i would not have th- i wouldn't have thought i wouldn't have made the connection that that kind of creative content even if it's being produced for netflix is a lot like r&d you know, oh, so yeah. like, yeah. you know, in the, so in, in the, in the war, um, and you mentioned it earlier in the war among different cities all over the world, not just America for jobs, you know, growing R and D jobs in your city is just like gold. And I think, you know, the way that, so if I'm, if I, I want to track it back to this cultural economy, um, you're, you're trying to get people to think in a different way about arts and culture and, in a way, in similar to how we might approach the life sciences uh, sector, the the tech sector, yes. which is going to have um, uh, uh, a, lo- a a broad network of large companies, mid-sized companies, small companies, people who supply those companies, and you're trying to take. I know I'm oversimplifying, Michael, but you're trying to take a similar view to yes. arts and culture. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, and and I think we have a great example for it in sports. I mean, we we absolutely. You know, and, and whether, you know, I, I think that strategy worked for a time. I think there's some question of if that really, you know, there's a lot of economists who would say investing in stadiums isn't, you know, necessarily yield the economic returns that you think it does. And there's, so there's a lot of debate there. I'm not going to go down that road at the moment, but, you know, my, my, my point is I do think though, there's been a lot of really effective strategy around embracing sports as an economy when, you know, that's a very different, and that is a cultural, sports are a cultural 
aspect of the, uh, you know, have cultural implications. You know, yeah. I, I would consider sports in culture and to a certain degree. I think, you know, I would, you know, moving forward, I would approach the strategy much different. You know, I would, I would say, like, I think we really missed the boat on esports. Um, and I think we missed the boat on esports e that are about sports. <laughs> so, like the Madden, you know, in FIFA, uh, we should have been having the world championships in, in um, you know, uh, video game competitions in those areas simultaneously as like we're having the Big Ten and all that stuff. But, but, anyways, like, I, you know, I think the, I'm not necessarily advocating, although I'd love to see more money go to the arts council and to artists and art and arts and culture. Yeah. We have traditionally defined it. So I'm not, I'm not advocating that we don't do that. It's a both end. Yeah. Um, and, and, but I think like, uh, I think it's starting to realize that like, what are the, uh, what are the hidden gems that we have in Indy right now? I think IUPUI's new media program is one of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, the thinking about all the adjacent, you know, there's a term that, um, Oh, what's his name? John is it Steven Johnson. Johnson. I think he wrote the book. Uh, maybe when you do show notes, you can help me figure this out. It's sure. It's um, it's the history of innovation. Um, and he has this, this phrase called the adjacent possible. And that has stuck with me so much. Cause he says, you know, in a coral reef, it's like the edge of the coral reef where the biodiversity is its greatest. Oh, wow. And so like, how do you mimic that within economy? Uh, and so how do you, how do you foster the adjacent possible? Because that's where innovation emerges. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I will, I will say, you know, the, um, there's a new sports tech accelerator that the, um, yes, Indiana sports corp has created with, um, with tech stars that is that I, that I do, I do need to mention as, as a place where it's a little different than what you're talking about, but um, could get really interesting. And I'm very encouraged by that. I think that's yeah. a great app to me. That is a very good application yeah. of what we have, the resources we have now, um, and how we can sort of leverage. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I think it's also a great model for what you could, you know, and what also, what I, so what I think they should do with that, like the thing they should add is a gaming component. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine if there were people doing game design where they could actually use these athletes in real time to study motion and do motion capture. And, you know, there's some other, there's some interesting potential there in my opinion. Yeah. So Michael, you know, some people like they look at, you know, you look at the development of cities and I'm thinking, especially in the last 20 years, Nashville, Tennessee has really emerged as a, um, they've really leveraged their, you know, music history and music assets and become a real national draw, you know, Austin, Texas and Indy on some measures outperforms Nashville, but, but by, in terms of in migration, talent in migration, Nashville does a better job um, with a, with a more national draw than, than Indianapolis. My, but here's, here's my thing. I've studied both those cities and some of them is just through relationships that I have in those cities. And they're certainly in Nashville, there's there's some civic strategy that's really helped to create it, but then there are a lot of happy accidents too, you know, yeah. with um, um, you know, with the evolution of country music and then to other forms of music and things like that. And so, I interact sometimes with people in Indianapolis, uh, um, who who are all about possibilities and they execute really well and they're great to work with. And then I interact with another group of people who are just like, wait a minute, we're we're not going to be like Nashville. And it makes me frustrated you've obviously been spending enough time here that you, you see some hope in the unique assets of Indianapolis. And how, how do you, how do you address maybe the skeptics and, and, and as you look at Indianapolis's 
unique assets that that we should be leveraging if we were really gonna um, elevate this cultural economy, you know, in the way you're describing? Well, I mean, every sector we have, there were intentional decisions made to foster those sectors. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah. you know, like there was, you know, intentionality around growing the IU School of Medicine. Yeah. There was intentionality around, you know, this a major investment to an innovation district that will be primarily focused on biotech innovation, as I yeah. understand. Um, you know, um, I, I think we just need to make some, again, this goes back to patience, right? And so yeah. uh, we need to be willing to build out a long strategy that, you know, I, I think the other, I think the other challenge with India is that, you know, it obviously can't be totally outside of our DNA. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's enough to your, I, I do think there is enough in our DNA that would support, uh, um, you know, us embracing a new, a new sector and, and figuring out what the strategy to grow that sector. Yeah. Is there a, is there a design, you know, future? Is there a, is there an opportunity to grow? You know, so, some of this also, you know, honestly, some of it just also, it, it, you know, like what's interesting is like a design strategy, you immediately have to ask the question, okay, how do we then, how do we then grow Ball State's presence here um, with their design program since IU has made their decision to have their architecture school in Columbus? Um, and are there still ways to leverage Columbus's architecture program to grow sort of design thinking within India? So, I mean, to yeah. me, again, it's all, it's just all strategy, right? And then it's all building the relationships with a sh shared set of goals. Um, I just don't think, again, I don't think we've embraced the potential yet um, of, of arts and culture. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm just hoping that, you know, and, and some of that I think is because we have maybe put an overemphasis on, um, yeah, I mean, art says it's traditionally understood and defined. Yeah. And as we talk about this, I am going to, I am going to ask you, this might sound like fishing for maybe a, a compliment for Indianapolis, but what I, I guess what I really am asking about is like, I, I have come, I've come to an appreciation, uh, you know, in my friendship with you of assets, unique assets at Indianapolis is that I didn't even value enough before. And part of my job is, you know, is to be, you know, paid cheerleader for Indianapolis, but I'm, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but you, you've consistently, um, remarked over the years that one thing that Indianapolis has is you're closer to the means of production for a wide range of industries than you are in most cities in the country, you know, so manufacturing drugs and, and, and um, medical devices, manufacturing, you know, the most high-tech jet engines and diesel engines and hybrid engines in the country. And, 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 and what's, what's the link there between that wide range of making stuff agriculture technology is a really important sector for us. What's the, what's the link there in your mind between like that wide range of production and cultural economies? Yeah. It's um, a good question. I mean, I, I think, you know, I mean, there are so many different, I, I guess the other thing I should say is there's, there, there's, there's many subsectors within cultural economies. Right. Yeah. So, like, so, you know, like one of um uh, this, I'm going to kind of start to answer this by going in a slightly different direction, but then hopefully bring it back, you know? So like, for instance, like there are certain sort of um, policy uh, constraints uh, around film, like uh, every single, yeah. con 
every con single contiguous state to Indiana uh, has a film, a tax um, tax break for doing film production. In yeah. States. I mean, just look at what, what has happened with Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta uh, is basically the second Hollywood now. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I think I think it's like the world's largest studio is in Atlanta, which is uh, Tyler Perry studio. Um, oh, wow. Uh, just from a pure acreage standpoint. And so, you know, I think like we, um, so like film might not be, like, I think we need to have a, a strategy around film and do the best we can with what we're hindered by and then figure out like long-term, how do we then change that policy to at least make us, you know, an even playing field with our neighboring states. Um, uh, but that, you know, maybe that isn't the highest and best, you know, strategy for us. Okay. Um, um, so, you know, back to the making side of things, I guess, like, I, I guess what I would say is if we can begin to sort of loosen the edges, you know, break up, sort of make the edges of those industries more permeable yeah, and find ways to sort of leverage, you know, those, those industries to invite more, uh, creative activity around them, that would be a way to then, you know, you know, grow off of what you already have, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we have, I, I, I um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I, I'm not, I'm not really quite answering your question directly, but I think, um, yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's, I, I, I think, I guess I'd go, I would say, I don't know if enough time and energy and thought has been put into it. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I'm one person thinking about this stuff. I think others are starting to think about this stuff. I think if we were, if we could convene the right group of people to really say, okay, this matters, there's real opportunity around this where, what's the focus going to be? Yeah. Is, is the focus going to be, uh, around sort of, um, you know, um, augmented and virtual realities applications within manufacturing medicine and, you know, cause then, because then you are looking for people who are doing user interface design and you are looking yep. for, designers, you are looking for artists. And so it, it, to me, it's just like, we, we've kind of yet to really like, uh, I think embrace those opportunities. Yeah. And so as a result, I don't know if there's a strategy that I could articulate very clearly. Well, you know, one of the, it plays into one of the, um, some would say like a contradiction about Indianapolis. Some might say a dichotomy about Indianapolis is like, you know, you and I've lived here long enough on one hand, um, there is within the state as they're in within a lot of States, there is a, cultural resistance to change that is not unique to Hoosiers, but it, it's, it's a thing, you know, and, but on the other hand, there's a lack of, um, kind of political, um, uh, there it's, it's, there's a lack of political polarity when you compare it to other cities and that, that, when the community gets aligned on, on big things, it can move very fast. Oh yeah. You know? yeah. And, and so, and it's, and I, and, and so um, like, you know, a recent example is the uh, opportunity to host um, a, uh, in a, a, you know, a mostly enclosed, like it's basically a bubble for men's uh, NCAA basketball tournament. It's really complex to be able to pull this off. You know, it's controversial because there are those people, there are people who think that NCAA shouldn't be, shouldn't be playing the tournament. And I'm not going to get into that, but um, you know, the, the, the ability to pull something like this off, having the entire tournament over a three week period in Indianapolis is really complex, but people aligned around it. It's like, boom, you know, and yeah. now it's happening incredibly fast. I'm sure it's going to be successful. And uh, it's like, 
you can kind of see if you could like, like to your last comment, if you could get everybody aligned on these opportunities, we have the Indianapolis has the capabilities to execute, you know? Yeah. And I think some of it has to do with this. Maybe the bench isn't just quite deep enough yet. You know, the, the, the people with these interests and expertise uh, maybe just haven't fully, you know, manifested into positions of authority and Could influence to, yeah. to really move it yet. And so, you know, I think that I, I, you know, this could be a 10, 10, 20 year play, right. Yeah. This is not necessarily a three year play. And I, yeah. um, and I think i I think just in the last couple of years, I've become to understand that much, much more acutely. Um, um, you know, one thing I wanted to say too, is, you know, like, so my, my background having, you know, been in the music business, this stuff all is really obvious and comes naturally to me because I didn't emerge in sort of the nonprofit art side of things. Yeah. Um, and that's not a discredit to the arts profit, you know, side of things, but I do think like music has always been a for-profit venture, uh, for yes. the most part yes. and, and has always been sort of a small business sort of, uh, mindset and growth. And, you know, like I, I, I realized like, you know, I, um, while I have been sort of in the sort of, uh, for-profit arts world side of things, I, I realized I was, I was. I th- and I don't know if this is by the nature of being in Indianapolis for so long, but I started kind of, I think, doing myself a detriment by communicating my work in arts and culture more through the language of nonprofit uh, language um, or attitude. Okay. And then, and then I was, I was talking, I was, I, w- I was getting uh, headhunted for this job outside of Indy and I wasn't interested in it, but I, but I was wanting to sort of better articulate what my skill set was to this um headhunter and and it dawned on me that i just was using the wrong language and so this guy was like he's like i just can't quite figure out what it is you do yeah (laughs) and then and then so i i took a step back and i said well you know well just to give you an example of one thing i've done i manage a 12 person internet uh, internet a 12-person international team uh i'm the basically the chief operating officer of a million dollar plus small business and, you know, like that's a pretty, you know, a pretty big, pretty big feat. Um, and, you know, to do that on the side of having a full-time job. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, you know, I, I started realizing that I need to get a bit, get back to doing a better job of saying, uh, you know, especially if I'm going to promote this idea of cultural economies, that there are business strategies and principles and practices that we can uh, do a better job of embracing to grow arts and cultural opportunities, jobs, experiences for our community. Again, not at the expense or um, in place of the nonprofit strategy, yeah. I think adjacent and supporting. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm th- like um, restaurants, uh, music venues, music labels, um, you, uh, you know, agencies that even agencies that do really, really creative work, uh, certainly filmmakers, um, you talk, I mean, it, when, what, when I hear you, it's inclusive of all those, all those sectors, right? Yeah. You know, what's really interesting comparison, I think is, is Cincinnati. And so Cincinnati has like what all the Procter Gamble stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and so you have this whole like periphery cloud of ad agencies that do the product design, brand yep. design, marketing for Procter Gamble products. Right. Yes. Um, you know, what, what we have a really big company around, you know, pharmaceutical drugs, those don't require the same type of mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, that's not a problem. It's just, it just, I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, um, 
there are these adjacent industries that can grow up around. We just need to, again, I think, figure out how to unlock those pop- possibilities. Yeah. So as you think about 2020, I, I want to shift a little bit, but, um, you know, you and I have had some conversations in the past year and I, I mean, I could, I could do a whole thing on all the things, all, all my beliefs that I've, I've now challenged and some of the, which were just wrong and been proven wrong um, by the events of the past year. And I, I, I want to, I do want to ask you to kind of share some of those reflections and both about cultural economy, but just broader in terms of how we're going to live because, and I think this is your, your role too, your, your role within Eskenazi and the work you're doing for the community foundation, your orientation is very much looking ahead and kind of, uh, at, at, things that are happening and, and forecast and looking at, you know, tre- trends on the fringe that are going to become bigger. And there, you know, a lot of things that you've talked about, it didn't click for me until like five years later, you know, <laughs> and no. then it goes, and then it goes mainstream. But um, I, I do want to ask you to reflect on the past year and how you're thinking about how we're going to live and how that, how that changes, um, you know, your view of community and, and, you know, what you're working on and things like that. Yeah, um, um, uh, I have a ton of thoughts on this, so I'll, I'll just try to do some highlights, and we can dive deeper into some of them if you want. Yep. Um, have a very increased interest in public space uh, as a result of everything that's happened, both from a COVID perspective and a and a um, racial justice perspective. I think it's really interesting that you know we have seen the value of both what I would call virtual and physical public spaces for the, per, for the need and purpose of protest. Um, although, you know, this week is an interesting, you know, uh, kind yes. of wrinkle on that and sort of trying to understand. We're, uh, yeah, this, this, uh, we're, we're, we're recording this conversation two days after uh, uh, Trump supporters uh, stormed the Capitol. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I think, um, you know, and, and, I, I, and I think like that's the, 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 the challenge of, of democracy though, that the fact that a few can actually have a voice, right? Um, and sometimes for, you know, for better and for much worse. Um, but anyways, I think public space gets really interesting also from a COVID perspective because, you know, like the sidewalk cafes and people shutting down streets and people wanting to be outside and, you know, bicycle sales went through the roof. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm pleased that, you know, one of the things I've been a huge proponent of for a long time is the need to further build out our greenway and bicycle infrastructure in the city. Um, yeah. uh, and, and in a, in a, in a, in a cash constrained city, that uh, has historically severely underinvested in parks and in transportation, a greenway is a beautiful investment that yes. serves both purposes. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the future of public space and the way that we, because inevitably there's gonna also be a sort of a psychological trauma of being in public space. Um, and so how do we design to support healing of that sort of, uh, fear of others, you know, like, I mean, you know, some people are, you know, fine and back at it and, um, um, you know, embracing being in public spaces, but there is a lot of people who can't for a variety of reasons. Right. Um, and so I'm really interested to see how that plays out. And I have some ideas of how that will impact land use and urban development and, uh, you know, uh, movement patterns and growth patterns. Um, 
I wrote an essay recently where I basically said we need to suburbanize downtown. And what I meant by that is I do think like Indi Indianapolis has a unique opportunity to provide a lot of open space. Yeah. Um, but to use that space, not for surface level parking, but to use it for parks and gathering and, and just a, a sense of um, sort of green buffers. And uh, so, you know, I'm really interested in how all that, how that begins to play out. Yeah. Um, I think it also speaks to that desire for that walkable, smaller urban village, whether it's sort of in the context of a city or a suburb. And so, you know, like the new urbanism movement of Carmel, love it or hate it. It's an interesting trend to think about. I mean, it's happening in all of our, you know, adjacent suburbs. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, I think, I think I almost wonder like, what if we started thinking about Indianapolis as sort of these, you know, bedroom communities scattered throughout. And I, I think, you know, people like Brad Bobian has always talked about that urban village concept and yeah. others have tried to push into that. And, um, but, you know, I think now, like, how do you do that? Kind of, how do you understand sort of the health implications of that, but then also the equity implications, of course. Um, yeah. So I'm interested, so space is really interesting. And then, and then, and I would, then I, another big thing I'm interested in is, is what I'm calling digital justice. And, you know, we used to call it the digital divide, which in my mind, language is important. When you call something the digital divide, you just assume that it exists and you don't necessarily, there's no criticism in that, in that, def, in that designation, right? Yeah. It's just like, it's a divide. Um, whereas I think if we embrace something like digital justice or um, equity or, yeah, yeah. Like then you realize, okay, well, actually, no, there's a thing we need to work towards. And I've been really impressed and 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 appreciate that our city has really tried to push into ideas of like how do we expand broadband to our uh, all of our community? How do we get laptops to kids? Um, so I'm I'm really interested in how that topic of digital justice could expand, and you know that could include like what's our stance on facial recognition? Yeah. What's our stance on body cams? What's our stance on you know, it's like, cause the digital world is just, if anything, that's the other thing we, you know, you know, we, we, we so fast forwarded our virtual communities, right. And our virtual, yep. our virtual existence, and that's not going away. Um, and that has profound implications, by the way, on arts and culture and local arts and yep. culture, which, you know, we can talk about in our time. And, but, and you've, but, but, but you've talked about before in terms of digital justice and, and digital, you know, equity and inequity, the um, making sure that as we provide the tools to um, to children and families to help kids make sure that the the uh, uh, they've got the the tools to cover what I'm um, in air quotes the fundamentals of education that the explosion in creative tools be yes. a part of that conversation. Yes. Is that, is yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm glad you brought that up. I think there's a really unique opportunity to load those laptops up with Adobe creative suites, you know, and like what happens when you unleash, you know, cause so much, so much of that program, those programs are so intuitive at this point where, you know, I mean, you know, if, if kids are exploring Minecraft worlds and building things in mind, you know, like building music machines in Minecraft, you know, they get their whole, the hands on uh, something like, you know, Final Cut Pro or uh, After Effects or whatever, you know, Adobe suite, you know, stuff. I mean, imagine the stuff that they can start creating. And, and as, you know, and as we already talked about the content economy is huge yeah. and growing. And so, you know, um, how, how are we um, giving an opportunity for kids, not only to sort of give, empower them to tell their own stories, uh, but 
to give them the tools to, per, to participate in that. And I think there's so many things that they learn, you know, like, like I, I'm more and more interested in it's, it's not an arts education for a kid shouldn't be to train them as an artist. An arts education for a kid is to teach them how to be creative problem solvers, the value of collaboration, um, you know, uh, ideas and responding to context. Yeah. Um, like there's so much, so much richness there. And I think, I think this goes back to that moral imperative argument. I think we've lost, I think we've forgotten to advocate all these tools that come out of arts and culture that are transferable and, and very rich when applied outside of the context of arts and culture. Yeah. Um, and then one other thing I'd say yeah. about the COVID stuff, you know, or, or, or just racial justice and COVID combination is I think the, um, you know, I've, you know, you, you know me that I've been saying this from the get-go, that import-export idea, right? Like, I think we get so fixated on sort of bolstering Indy's reputation, and this is not to say that we shouldn't be promoting Indy, but I think we, I think historically we've really held on tight to our residents in a way that we don't want to lose them to the world. Yeah. Um, and so how do we open up a conversation that's more global that Indy's participating in that, you know, that we do talk about ourselves and we talk about ourselves confidently, but in the context of relationship to other cities and conversations. And I, that, that's a little bit obtuse. And I, so, I, so and I, as I hear you say that, I don't mean to interrupt, but it's like, so um, ditching the talk about quote brain drain, that's got this fear attached to it is what I hear you saying is yeah, as one, one this, component. Yeah. And this is a very small example, but like I, um, this goes back to local music. So, yeah. you know, one of the reasons why I'm making sort of a shift in my career is, you know, I realize like there's, 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 there's a network of people that I'm engaged with internationally that I could actually tap into uh, and do more for indie by, by focusing my, my passion, like, you know, working more closely at the intersection of my skills, my passions and, and, my, and the needs I perceive. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, I've been working with this new, uh, hip hop group that, that, you know, um, we're going to announce soon. That's an indie based group that we just signed to, uh, Justin Vernon, who's Bonnie Vare and the Desner brothers from the nationals record label. Yeah. And, you know, and we're already talking to, awesome. you know, UK publicists and figuring out our distribution plan and strategy for Europe and, and the rest of the world. And so, you know, like, you know, and to be determined, you know, like how that then sort of feeds back into bolstering Indy's reputation and pride. Yeah. But like, you know, for me, that was really, really easy to do. And, and, you know, like the, the other thing I could have done was be like, Hey, we got to celebrate our local music scene. Like, yeah, we got to do that. But we also have to be thinking about that export as aspect. Yes. Yeah. And, and so like, how are we supporting artists to tour and musicians to tour? And how are we making connections. I was trying to do this with Indianapolis contemporary while I was helping out there. Like how do we build relationships and opportunities for the artists, uh, you know, the contemporary artists who are based here in Indy and get them showing in, um, you know, maybe not immediately in New York or LA, but at least, you know, Minneapolis and Dallas and, you know, Tulsa and wherever, you know, like, yeah. I, I think, you know, I think the, this again goes back to what is perhaps a lack of I don't, I don't want to say sophistication because it's not what it is. It's, it's sort of a lack of a sort of a business mindset around arts and culture as a strategy to grow arts and culture through an import and export sort of aspect of business. Yeah. Well, because yeah, it, we, we have that pride 
when uh, a local company goes public. You know, we have that pride when a local company's brand, you know, Angie's List is a recent example. When their brand went national, I know a lot of people just were proud that's an Indianapolis company. And, you know, um, and, and it's almost like broadening that thinking that we apply to business to arts and culture. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and sports. I mean, yeah. When, I mean, yeah. geez, man, when, when, yeah. you know, when Butler makes a run, you know, two years in a row to the, yeah. you know, men's national championship or the Pacers, the Colts do well. It's like, and that's where I know I sound like a Pollyanna, Michael, but you know, another thing that I think makes you unique is you're somebody who has, in my opinion, has taken a more optimistic view of sports in terms of let's take the sports assets that we have and broaden it where I feel like uh, you run into a lot of people here, maybe, maybe uh, who are maybe a little bit cynical because who will say we subsidize sports so much and we don't do anything for the arts and that, you know, you know what I mean? And that, and uh, yes, I'm talking about maybe some fo- some, I'm thinking of some individuals in an older generation, whereas even though you're somebody, as I've known you that, you know, team sports and pro sports aren't the big, aren't the biggest thing in your life. You've got a more, is it fair to say kind of optimistic or pragmatic view toward how we can build off that? I would say pragmatic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, well, I guess optimistic too, although I would say not short of being very critical. Of yeah. Like, like, like I think the different, like, I think it's okay. I think this is one of the things that the other thing that I would like to see Indy do a better job of, um, so there's two things. One in the arts and culture space, I would like to see us do a better job of knowledge creation. And, and so I think we have historically like not want, have not wanted to be provocative or um, engage in critical discourse or be critical of certain institutions locally uh, out of the fear of sort of retribution or rocking sort of this, the civility, you know, of our community uh, that we sort of, you know, believe in and support. And I think yeah. that's okay to a point, like, I don't want to be a jerk. Right. But like, yep. but I do think like we need to be willing. I think our city's small enough. That's, that's part of what we fear. Cause we know the people, you know, like I, you know, I'm, I'm friends with the person that runs the sports court. You yeah, know? Right. I like the guy, you know? And so like, I, but I have things, I have things I would say that would probably be like, oh, Michael, why'd you say that? You know? And so like, I'm trying to figure out how to do it in a way where I, I think I'm trying to figure out a way to do it. Like not be afraid to say, well, hey, hold up. Okay. Like, let's yep. be on, like, let's, let, let's at least entertain, like, at least hear me out. Yep. I'm, I'm not disparaging you just to disparage you. Um, but I'm hopefully offering some critique that allows us to do it better. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality and, and kind of back to your point, like pragmatic about it because these things aren't going away. Yeah. Um, and so I guess now though, what I would say at this moment in time is like, let's please not build another stadium. Um, and, and let's, and if we go to build another stadium, let's really make sure we understand the long-term implications and math around it. And I would have hoped that when we had done that recent large subsidy, that we could have put some constraints on it that required those, those facilities to only offer minimum or living wage jobs. Yeah. So I think that's starting to happen in some areas. I know Ian Nicolini is doing a good job with sort of the business incentives that, you, you know, that the Develop Indy has sort of moved in that direction with the city. And so I'm encouraged by that, but I, I think we need to understand that, you know, um, I think we need to start doing more things for our citizens first and not our citizens as a byproduct of our visitors and tourism. And yeah. that's not a discredit to the, that's not a, I'm not digging on Visit Indy. I'm just saying like, 
I think our strategy historically has been so focused on sort of bolstering who we are as a city at the expense of our citizens. Yeah. So, and again, this has been, this has been really good. And I, 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 I've taken more of your time than I wanted to. I I do want to spend a few minutes though, talking about equity because, um, uh, we were having a conversation recently and again, um, the, the impacts, the disproportionate impacts of COVID on um, uh, Black Americans, Black residents in Indianapolis and communities of color, the um, killing of George Floyd and the heightened awareness around racism. Um, I, it, sorry, that's, that's not heightened aware, awareness by Black people. They've always been aware of <laughs> racism. You know, it's like, um, and there, there's an opportunity. And, you know, I had shared with you, yeah, you know, consciously or not, and I don't know, I long, I thought about economic development, you know, as recently as 10 years ago as, you know, getting, getting more people to move here from the coast. And what we're finding out is not only is it the right thing to do to create, to address racism in your community and, and address um, economic um, mobility and create pathways for people to, um, have, have uh, a success and mobility, but it's not just the right thing to do. It's also a better strategy. It's also yeah. a more efficient strategy, you know? So can you, I know you've got, you've got some very, um, you know, specific views on, on, on this issue. Um, yeah. Can you, can you, can you kind of reflect on that? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I, I am more and more embracing what is probably a very unpopular in some circles uh, term, which is sort of this idea of reparations. And, and, and I'm not necessarily suggesting that reparations is the right path forward as, and there's different definitions of what that means. But I do think we need to start think, ha- have a reparational mindset. And what I mean by that is like, you know, when you, when you look at, I think there's a tendency now, I, I, you know, I appreciate sort of this, you know, push for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but my concern is it becomes uh, that we're only aiming to be representative. Yeah. And when you're representative, like, you know, you're not representative when it's been in balance for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes. Um, and so, you know, like a great example, I think, is in the community development space, which is really challenging because, you know, you have federal dollars that come in um, and they have to be spent in a certain way. And there's a sort of a, a certain level of expertise that's required on the recipients to spend it that way. And I, I have seen historically that it's sort of defaulted to um, honestly, you know, typically white led and white based, you know, predominantly white neighborhoods, you know, now definitely lower income or, or um, neighborhoods that are struggling with, you know, loss of jobs or, and so, you know, and the problem is, is that because we don't have the same kind of resources from a federal standpoint, resources that can go, at least that, I, that I'm not aware of as um, for, for, to really invest in capacity building within neighborhoods. And, and that's simultaneously, you know, kind of an uphill battle when you've been uh, oppressed and sort of victims of systemic, you know, racist policies, housing policies, et cetera. And so, like, I think that's where that reparational mindset comes in. It's like, it's not about leveling the playing field um, because the playing field is so inverted. Uh, you actually have to make up for all that 
lack of investment and and in just you know distribution over the yeah. over a long period. And so I, I don't know, like that's easy, very, very easy to say, at least for me to say. How you implement that, I don't I don't know. Yeah. I, I do, I do, I do think though, um, we just need to, I, I think if you know, I, I'm a I'm a real believer that if you can change change vernacular, it changes attitude, it changes behavior, it changes sort of procedure and policy, and then it changes institutions. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I guess at least right now I'm trying to invest in changing that vernacular to say, let's, let's go beyond being representative to considering sort of reparationally mindsets. Now, now granted, I get that there's sort of, uh, there are legal implications to that, that you can't, you know, you know, whatever reverse discriminate, but I don't know, know, man, like that is just, to me, that's that's just like a cop-out on some level, but, but, but I, I, so I do think there's, um, I think we should be having that conversation a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I think the, just, um, in mainstream discussions, the, um, you know, reparations used to be kind of a fringe topic several years ago, and I'm seeing it more and more now. And, and, you know, it's like, I don't know, I don't know what the right answer is too. I'm trying to get more educated on all the, um, possibilities. But, you know, I'll I'll tell you, you know, as someone who my day job is for a large uh, civic institution, I am aware, you know, that like, like, like an organization like ours and others, we need to take very concrete action within our organizations and uh, how our, how our, uh, how our, the leadership of our organization structure, the programs that we administer and things like that. But I am very aware that, you know, like this summer, putting out statements by companies and organizations um, in favor of Black Lives Matter and in favor of um, taking action on racial equity is the right thing to do. But I'm also I'm also aware that it can also be just the ultimate self-preservation move, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and so, you know, you have to, we, we have to um, check ourselves and you know, we talk about the vernacular changing and, you know, somebody you've been saying this, Brian Payne, others have been saying this, um, getting very explicit about sharing power and sharing authority and sharing resources, you yes. know, and yeah. giving up and people in power, giving up power and giving up resources um, it, it is an important part of the yeah. discussion too. And, and it's going to be a messy one. And I think it's, I think yeah. everyone's going to be willing for it to be messy. And I, you know, like I, um, yeah, I, I, I've been thinking lately about how like in kind of the com- quote unquote community development world, you know, the, like, you know, people say like, well, don't do, don't do something to a neighborhood. Don't even do something for a neighborhood. You know, there's, you know, there's kind of like a white savior aspect to that, yeah. um, you know, do something with a neighborhood, but I'm actually now kind of feeling like you don't even do something with a neighborhood. You let the neighborhood do for itself by giving them the resource, you know, by, by, by surrendering resources and, uh, and power to that neighborhood. Yeah. And so, and, and so that, you know, and that, that's, again, what does that look like? How does that get applied? What are the implications of that as a much, you know, yeah. I realize it's tricky to, again, easy to say hard to apply, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it's not worth the effort and the journey and the hard work to apply because we certainly have some, some, uh, you know, some reconciliation to do, uh, on behalf of sort of how we've benefited from the sins of our fathers. Yes. Yep. And, and, and I, and I, and I think the, you know, I, you know, I, I said this earlier, kind of before we were recording, I think, you know, one of the challenges is 
you know, I, I guess I would say like, you know, I, I really do believe race and class go hand in hand. And, and I think we need to be willing to talk about the complexities of that. Yeah. Um, I think what happened earlier this week was uh, an indication of, of, of a, of a economic inequity issue that affects everyone. Now, obviously, uh, very differently and I'm not justifying at all or, or sort of, uh, giving excuse or, um, you know, uh, justifying, you know, what, what actions that were taken in the, you know, attacking the Capitol building. But I do think it's interesting that, um, I, I think we have to be talking about both those things simultaneously. Absolutely. I mean, that, that it's it's indicative it's it's shocking and horrible and and you know personally what the what the president did um to encourage people i think uh is uh was wrong and and uh there and everybody's horrified as they as they should be and yet it is um it stems from a segment of america that feels like the system has totally screwed them over and while i don't you know I don't agree with the actions that they took at all. And the people who are, um, who are going to get prosecuted for harming individuals and property and things like that should be, it's, it's this big segment of America. That's not going anywhere. If that's what you're. Yeah. You're yeah. And I think, and I think, and I don't think they've had it just, I certainly don't think they've had it just as hard. That's not my point. No, they, no. they have access to like sort of an, a ridiculous amount of privilege and power just by their, sh- the sheer, uh, fabrication of their whiteness. Yep. And so I, I, yep. I'm, I'm not going to say otherwise, I guess my, my point is though, is that like, um, they have been trained to blame the other exactly for their condition, but the other they should be blaming is this sort of massive wealth divide, um, that, you know, we have, we have to address. Yeah. Um, you know, your, our friends at, uh, Kepra Institute, who you, um, really introduced us to and encouraged us. Um, we're talking with them and others about an effort to bring together leaders from urban marginalized communities and bring together leaders from rural marginalized mm-hmm. communities to, um, to, and, and we would run these as some experiments, but it's fun to think about to see if we can identify in our own city and region, identify areas of common interest and break through some of the gamesmanship. Like there's no question there, there are elements within the Republican party that, you know, are um, convincing these people who feel marginalized that it's, it's because of immigrants, you know, and it's because, and, and it just Jim up. And, and I, again, on certain things like this, I remain the optimist. You, you, you know, you just drive around and you can see that, um, marginalized urban communities and marginalized rural communities, even though they have some, some, some differences, um, they've got more in common than, uh, mainstream would want you to believe. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And I, and I, and I, as I said to you, I don't think there's like some, I don't think there's some, um, you know, Illuminati sort of, uh, group of people who are, you know, maliciously or nefariously perpetuating this. I think, I think, I think that's how it started. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's often how it's fostered. Yeah. But but it's ultimately sustained and perpetuated by the the resulting system that's been created and its embeddedness in, in the system. I mean, I think there's aspects of it embedded in the constitution that need to be addressed. Yeah. Um, there's aspects that are embedded into the fact that so this really interesting statistic that um, you know even with the control the shift of control of the Senate to the Democrats the number of people represented 
uh, it's some crazy thing like, you know, it's like 40 million people. Uh, I'll have to, I'm butchering it. But basically the idea being that like the way the electoral college is set up, the way the Senate is set up, it has favored certain things and perpetuates certain things that are worth examining, right? I'm not suggesting we throw out the model completely, but I do yeah. think I do think if any if there's ever a time to examine this, this is the time. Yeah. Well, um, okay. So last question: Ten years ago, yeah, ten years ago, you turned me on to a book, The Long Tail, yeah. <laughs> which was a real game changer for me. Around like not long after that, Aaron Wren had me read um, or encouraged me to read New New Geography of Jobs. So again, ta- I didn't ask you this in advance. So I apologize, but top of mind, like for people who would want to dig into any of these issues, are there things that you have read or are reading or even like podcasts or, or shows that if people wanted to dig into some of this subject matter, things that have impacted um, your thinking on these issues? Yeah. I mean, I, um, well, I mean, there's some stuff that's pretty scholarly that has impacted. So I want to try to get yeah. something a little bit more layman. I, I think uh, the Seeing White podcast is really good. Seeing White. Okay. Yeah. yeah Available it's, on. Yeah. It's the, the podcast is actually called Seen on Radio, S C E N E on Radio. And then the, I think it's season three, Seeing White. And really it just talks about the construction of race um, and then the implications of it. Um, I think that's a really good one to listen to. Um, I think the, um, uh, I, well, and then this is sort of, sort of related, unrelated. I've been listening to a podcast called Philosophize This, which is just a philosophy podcast. I, yeah. I think, I think I've learned a lot, you know, um, just exercising my critical thinking Yeah. and, and being willing to sort of have some of my assumptions challenged, yeah. uh, to sort of refine my thinking on things. Um, yeah, those are the, those are probably sort of my, you know, and, and if people haven't watched the 13th, I think that's an incredible documentary yes. that, that really, you know, hopefully begins to open people's eyes to the fact that, you know, we've enabled this form of, of slavery through um, reconstruction and, and the criminal justice system and, um, you know, the complexities there. So yeah. cool. um, I think as far as arts and culture is concerned, you know, I, I, I could, you know, um, I don't know if I have anything specific there other than, you know, just, um, you know, I, I think, you know, there's so much out there to explore. <laughs> so it's, yeah. just, it's, it's, it's like, it's challenging people. You know, I, I, I always challenge people like listen to something you would not think to listen to. Yes. Um, uh, read something you wouldn't think to read, you know, because uh, we are all very much stuck in our own algorithmic feedback loops. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's been, that's been of the, of the past year. It's just this, um, when confronted with the, uh, has, has everything, is everything that I once believed in just wrong? (laughs) You know, the good news is, is it's not hard to, you know, uh, find, find a book to read that you've wanted to read. That's going to challenge your views or have a conversation with someone who's got a totally different life experience, you know? So there's, there's no shortage of that. So, Hey, I just appreciate the conversation and definitely would like to continue sometime. And thank, thanks for, thanks for your time. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you. And, 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 and by the way, people, so people can follow you. I know, you know, some of the artists that you manage, uh, and, and work with Sun Lux, uh, Rafiq Batia, and then we'll look for this, um, uh, the launch of this new hip hop uh, supergroup. 
Yeah. Um, are there other, other ways people can um, kind of follow yeah, your, still, your activities? I've been writing pretty regularly through a blog uh, called punksyndrome.com. Punksyndrome.com. Great. Yeah. And, um, you know, publishing there, you know, a couple articles a month uh, and you can sign up for an email list if you want to be alerted when I publish new things. Great. And a lot of that, you know, a lot of that started with my reflections of how uh, experimental music and punk music actually prepared me to be a father of a child with Down syndrome. Uh, and then sort of it's grown out of that into a conversation, just my perspectives on culture. It is, it is, you know, it's some fairly radical uh, sort of politically leaning <laughs> and, and sometimes a, a bit uh, critical of, of things here in Indy, but hopefully done in a way that's meant to be um, uh, building and not, you know, not just tearing down. Yeah. Thanks again, Michael Kaufman. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Thanks.